is great. Uh, the cold is in the air, the sun's getting up, and for some strange reason, people are still in t-shirts. Tim, I don't understand it, but it's great. Let me, um, we're going to get stuck into God's Word. I'm Kerry. Uh, if you haven't met me before, I come and attend this church. Uh, before we get stuck into God's Word, let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that we can come before your Word right now to hear from what you have to say to us. Lord, I pray that you will prepare us, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, that as we come to your word in this meaty passage, Lord, help us to not leave here as smart as sinners, but that we would live transformed lives. So Lord, I pray this in your son's most precious and glorious name. Amen. Well, we're looking at Psalm 87, so keep your Bibles there. Um, well, here is a picture of a North African Medina. So it's like a marketplace. It's a place where they sell sort of, you know, cultural goods, pots and pans and, um, you know, tiles with mosaics on them, you know. We, and last year, we were actually walking, my family and I, my, my wife and my daughter, uh, were walking through these sort of intertwined alleyways, and we kind of... Uh, start seeing all these different people walking along and, and a lot of shop owners. And one shop owner, he, he comes out and he sees me and he sees my wife and my, my little two-year-old girl. And he goes, Ni hao! And I'm like, G'day, mate! Because I was just like, I, 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 I'm an Australian, like, I mean, he, he goes, oh, well, you, you speak English, and yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm Australian, I, I was born there, I was raised there, I'm, I, I am Australian, I mean, I, I can say words like struth and fair dinkum, I, and I know what those mean, if you know what struth is, struth is, it's the truth, um, struth, like, and I was telling him, it's the truth, I, I am Australian, I've got a birth certificate that says I'm Australian, I have a passport that identifies myself as Australian. His response was, oh, it's impossible, you are Chinese, uh, Chinese, you're not Australian. So I guess the thing for him is that he just, he just didn't have a category for me. He didn't have a thing in his mind. One, he's probably never met an Australian before in his life. But at the second time, the second thing is he actually just doesn't have a box to fit me in but I am Australian. Part of my identity is Australian. See, the thing is this, for a lot of us, we go through life and we try to fit in. We want to prove to people that, yeah, I am who I say I am. This is my identity. This is who I am. I, I fit in. I belong. I'm part of that group. You see, the thing is this, our identity and belonging is so tied to our circumstances, aren't they? Family origins or your work or your spirituality, your travel, your hobbies, our upbringing, whether you're a Westie or maybe whether you're a Southwestie of Sydney or maybe you come from another country altogether. I think the reason this is so important for us, identity and belonging, is because it's so tied to our security. Because that's what we're seeking. The general psychology uh, in Australia says that, that belonging isn't just a desire of our hearts. It's not something just we want. It's actually a need. 
Because those that don't have it and, or don't feel like they belong, they don't fit in, there's a higher a percentage of depression, of anxiety, a loss of worth, even a shorter lifespan. C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the, a theologian and philosopher, uh, author of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, this is what he says about belonging. He says, I believe that in all people's lives at certain per- periods, and in many people's lives at all periods, between infancy and old age, so between birth and death, for every single one of us, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror, the terror of being left outside. See, the issue is that when we, when we don't feel like we belong, when we don't fit in, when we aren't accepted, when we sort of we feel outside, outside of that inner circle, outside of that ring, that place of belonging. Some of us here might say, well, actually, I'm pretty content right now. I'm, I'm not always thinking about this. My identity is pretty, pretty okay, you know. But I think this happens to all of us, especially when there is a change of circumstance or there's a transitional phase in our life. Maybe you're you're transitioning from school to TAFE or to uni or to work, or maybe you're in between work right now, or maybe it's when you lose someone who was very important in your life, a family member, a partner, a friend, or when you seem like life isn't measuring up to our, your own expectations. When we get stuck in those if-only moments, I mean, if only I had friends that understood me. If only I had the respect of my parents. If only I had that new car or that new house or that new job or partner or family. Or th- then, then I would have made it. If only people knew how hard I worked. Then they'll know that I, I'm a good person. If only I, I did more stuff at church. I was more involved. Then I'll be accepted. I'll be recognized. God would recognize me. There's this endless if only. Listen there. The thing is that we know that circumstances change. We know that our identity can't, can't be placed in the fact that things do change. Regardless of what family you are part of, there is brokenness. Friend networks, they don't stay the same. Hobbies fade and our interests fade. What, are, what will satisfy this endless desire? What will satisfy this endless search for identity and belonging and security? Who can have it? And if we can have it, what does it look like for our life? That's what I want to look into today. What will satisfy. Last week, we looked at the hope that we can have as a result of the resurrection of Jesus, that it's an eternal hope, one that is secure, one that is unshakable. And I want to say that the poem that we, or song that we just read in the Psalms, talks about that same hope. And it's where we should find our identity and our belonging and our security. So if you've got your Bibles there, read with me. Um, We're going to look at verse 1 to 3. 
It's a really meaty passage, so let's just get stuck into it. So he has founded his city on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. What is the psalmist here talking about? I mean, he's not talking about hope. He's not talking about identity. I mean, he's not talking about belonging and security here, Kerry. Like, what's he talking about? Why are you saying that verse 1 to 3 points to belonging and security and identity? Well, let, let me try and explain this to you in this way. Um, last year and December, uh, and November and December, two months, um, my wife and daughter, we, uh, we went on this sort of monumental trip trying to figure out well, where God might want us long term. So uh, now we're actually headed to North Africa. Uh, and in that whole time, those two months... We spent about 72 hours on a plane. In that whole trip, in two months, we spent 72 hours on a plane. We spent so much time on the plane that my almost two-year-old daughter back then, when the cart would kind of roll around and roll in from the, the, the back of the cabin, she knew to say, juice, uh, snacks. And she knew that the towel, that, that warm towel, was to wipe her face. And we spent so much time there uh, that she just knew. And it was unsettling. It was really unsettling being in so many different places and not having a place where we just were. Just this week, my wife was telling me how amazing it is that we can wake up every morning and be in the same house. And that we, everything around us is familiar, that we can speak the same language, where we don't have to figure out what's going on at every turn. That I can just be home. And that's the thing, Sydney has been my home for most of my life. And it's a place where I don't feel like I have to strive to belong and fit into a foreign community. Because when I'm in another city that's foreign to me, that's, I'm not comfortable, I'm not fully comfortable. I mean, there's things to improve about Sydney, but for me, it's the place that I know and I love and where I find part of my identity and belonging and security. So what God is talking about here in these first three verses is the place where He has established, where He dwells, where He delights in. See, in that first verse, the holy mountain image, and even in verse um, 2, the gates of Zion... Uh, it's the idea for, for the ancient Israelites who were supposed to read this, uh, who, were, who were the original um, uh, people who would have read this. Um, this is the picture of Jerusalem, this, this place where God dwells, where His people could go and enter into the holy city, where they can come and be with God. See, it was always tied to a particular place for a particular people. See, the story of the Bible is the restoration of God's people to God Himself and into a land that God has promised, to a place that He has promised, Jerusalem. That happened where in Exodus, where you know when they were um, they were heading out from the from uh, the slavery that they were to the Egyptians, um, and God said to them there that I will take you to a land that is, is promised to you, Jerusalem. After the Israelites were forcibly taken out of that land and from the Babylonians, they were living in exile, living in another place. 
God said to them that he will bring them back to Jerusalem, a place where it will be secure forever. And then in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the promise is this for us, after Jesus. Look with me in Revelation 21, 1-4. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. This picture of sea is this idea of chaos and of disorder. It's not the fact that there won't be any beaches, right? So it's, it's a picture of just, just turmoil, like it just, things are, are, are messy. But what's the promise? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, or this idea here in the holy mountain, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among them, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. This is the promise what that place will look like. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more crying. And there'll be no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Why should we find our identity and belonging and security in this place? Because God himself establishes it. And it's a place where the emptiness, the brokenness, the dissatisfaction, the longing that we have will be met. It's home. And God wants us to find our place of rest there, where he dwells. To rephrase what Blaise Pascal, the 17th century mathematician and philosopher said, he said this, we try and fill our lives with what is temporary, but it doesn't satisfy our craving or helplessness. Because the reality is, none of that stuff will satisfy. Because the only thing that will satisfy is what is infinite, what is lasting, and what is eternal. That's why these verses should bring hope. That's when we read it, we should see that this is where God dwells, where this is where He is. This is the heavenly Jerusalem where God's people will be, where there will be no more pain, where there will be no more suffering, where there will be no more chaos, where we should find joy and satisfaction and rest. My challenge and question for us today is this. What things take up your energy and your time your thoughts, and what, your, what, and what are those things that take you away from God and take you away from what is eternal? What are your if-onlys?
What are you going to do about it? Maybe it's firstly coming to God and repentance for it. To stop making those things in your life that are temporary, ultimate. It doesn't mean you don't enjoy it, but it's not where you should find your joy. Maybe it's scheduling in time to spend time with God in prayer, knowing that He does answer us. In reading, not just for more intellectual knowledge, but to know that what you read that day should shape what you do that day, that, that week, to be specific with the application of what God says. I think one of the biggest problems, or I think one of the problems that we have as a church, and as I talk to people, and as I journeyed with people, as I read the Word with people, you know what we're really good at? We're really good at reading. We're really good at dissecting a particular passage and trying to figure out what it means. But you know, I think what we really fail to do a lot of the time, we don't apply it. It just becomes this puffing up of knowledge. We might know 90% of a lot of things, but only 10% do we apply. How does what is eternal change your perspective today? Because if we truly believe that belonging to God, that life with God now and into eternity is the best life, then living God's way will be the most satisfying, the most joyful and most fulfilling thing. And living God's way is what we will pursue Belonging to God is where we should find our identity and full security. So what you read at CG on Wednesday night, your community group on Wednesday night, shape what you do on Thursday. How does it shape how you relate to God? How, do you, how you speak to your friend when you don't agree? Your boss at work who gets on your nerves? How you sponsor him or her? Your parents who nag you all the time? How does it influence the way you raise your children? Or relate to your grandchildren? Or how does it affect how you plan your retirement? If we truly belong to God and our identity belongs with Him and in His place, in His holy mountain, in Zion, in His holy city, if we are citizens of that country, how is this reflected in how you live? I think one of the questions that um, plays me a lot and sort of I'm constantly fighting and uh, especially is it comes when I have doubts, uh, especially when I'm unsure where I stand before God. I mean, I've chased after other things bef before. I've made other things ultimate. How do I even know God wants me in this city? How do I even know I belong? You say my identity should be wrapped up there, Carrie, but that I should find my security there. But how do I know that I'm a citizen? How do I know that I fit in? I think that's what this passage points to as well. And it gives me hope. Who can belong to this heavenly dwelling? Well, let's read verse 4. You've got to see how crazy this is. This list is crazy. 
I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. What? Philistia too, and Tyre, along with Cush. And I will say, this one was born in Zion. Those people? Indeed, of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the registers of the people, this one was born in Zion. As they make music, they will sing, all my fountains are in you. These people will worship God. These people? Kind of confusing, isn't it? I mean, you could probably like, I still don't really get what he's talking about. I mean, what are all these places? They don't mean anything to me. Well, um, this is not my grandmother, but when I think of Asian grandmas, this is kind of the picture that I get uh, in my mind. Uh, my grandmother kind of looked like this, traditional outfit, big smile, white hair. So the first time I actually went over to my wife's house, um, uh, well, not my wife's house, my, um, my, fu- my in-laws, uh, I went and met the parents. The first person that came to the door was Heidi's pupil, grandmother. And I'm, I'm nervous already. Uh, I'm walking in, and, um, and the first thing I think is that when this older lady in a traditional outfit with white hair opens the door, I, my first thought is this. Man, Heidi's mum is really old. Um, and the second thought that ran through my mind was... Man, she's really traditional. I don't know if I'm prepared enough for this. You know, and then the, the, the thing that I least expected happened in all my life was the words that came out of her mouth next. She said, Bonjour. And I was like, What? Are you messing with me? Like, I, like. I have no category for this. Like, are you, are you serious? You're, you just said bonjour. I don't know how to respond. I just, I just stood there in stunned silence. I just, I didn't know what to say. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I said good day, mate, or something. I don't know. I responded somehow. I, I've got no categories for... The reason why um, she said bonjour was that was her first language. She grew up in Mauritius. Uh, used to be a French colony, and my, uh, my wife and, and her family um, uh, were from Mauritius. Well, Heidi was born here, but, um, but she, didn't spoke, she didn't speak any English, and so my, my mind was completely blown. Um, so what's the categorization of the people that fit and who will be in God's kingdom, in His heavenly Jerusalem? The place we should find rest. Whose names are written in Zion, in this city? And if you're an Israelite person listening to this psalm, it would just seem ridiculous. It would be confusing, categorically almost impossible. Because this list is a list of all the enemies of Israel. Or the people that were so far, or so different, or who were so diversely, just not the same as them. Those people, like that, can be accepted by God? So Rahab here in this passage, not the woman from Jericho, the word here is actually written differently in, in, in this psalm. It's, a, uh, it's actually a mocking term for Egypt. 
I mean, the Egyptians were a people that were hot-headed, arrogant, proud, and, and, and they went against God. I mean, there are people who are from there like that, that can be accepted by God. Babylon here is, is a picture of a nation of slaughter, of greed, of war, of wealth, of intolerance, of death. Nebuchadnezzar, um, one of the kings of Babylon, his favorite sayings, um, if you read history, is, he shall be put to death. Can you imagine the, the reigning prime minister, that being his favorite saying? Think modern-day Iraq, ISIS, or the perpetrators of the bombings in Sri Lanka. There are people, those people, who are from there, who are like that, are accepted by God? Felicia, those people who, who are far away, distant people, not just by land, but also by culture. Those people maybe think about the jungles of the Amazon or Berbers from the deepest, darkest Africa. There are people like that who are accepted by God? Tire, sophisticated, urban people, but worshipped worldly idols and were the instruments of war. Maybe think Japan 50 years ago, 60 years ago during the war. There are people who are like that from there that can be accepted by God. Ethiopia, I mean, pointing to not just Ethiopia, but all the African people. His picture here is more the fact that, yes, those people that are far off, those people that are culturally and ethnically diverse, different, who are worshipping their own perception of God, not the one true God. There are people who are from there like that that are accepted by God? This is a picture of the people that are outside, unlikely to be accepted by God according to the Jewish tradition. People that are rebellious, that have rejected God, that dishonor God, that live life according to their own measure, their own spirit, seeking after stuff, finding hope in themselves. People that find meaning and purpose in what they do. How they're perceived rather than by God. Those people who take God for granted, those people who show no recognition? Yes. Those people who are sinners can be accepted by God. What's the criteria? The criteria for those people from Egypt, Babylon, Tyre, Cush. If you read verse 4, what does it say? The criteria is this. It is those who acknowledge me. Among those who acknowledge me. See, this word here, acknowledge, is not just, it's more than just acknowledge, kind of know. It's not knowing about. It's actually, this, the word here is stronger than that. It's kind of this idea of knowing intimately. They know God intimately. They want to do life with God. It's not just to know about Him, it's to recognize Him and have faith in Him. And why it gives me hope 
is that it's a reminder for me and for us that what we looked at the last two weeks, Easter, the story is that Jesus, God himself, dealt with the problem by sending his own son for people like us. That God can accept us even in our rejection of him, in our darkest and filthiest state and, say, and says to us that if we trust in him, if we acknowledge him, that we will find an everlasting identity and belonging and security. It's not about belonging to a church. It's not about being called a Christian. It's not about being, being well put together. It's not about being middle class or, or living a good life. It's not about being good. It's not about how much we contribute to church either or how much time we invest in ministry. Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Ethiopia, Cush, they didn't belong to the Israelite community. but it's about belonging to God Himself and finding our identity in Him. And God can accept those we think He shouldn't. We see in this way Jesus related to people and accepted people and He offered forgiveness to people. Like the sinful woman in Luke 7, some of you have read this in just recent times or read this with, with my wife and I. The woman, the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7, she comes to Jesus broken to the party of a religious leader who is supposed to be upright in the community and she comes broken and she washes Jesus' feet. She was considered by, the, by the, her community as the furthest from God who lived a life of sin Maybe she was a woman who prostituted herself to the men of her town, taking what was rightfully reserved as a relationship between husband and wife. Maybe she was the thief. Maybe she was deceitful. Maybe she stole from others who wrecked homes. That person's not close to God. Everyone in that town considered her the epitome of sin. Yet she comes to Jesus, broken, washing Jesus' feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair. She starts to kiss his feet and she pours this really expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. The perfume costs a year's worth of wages. Because she recognized who Jesus was. What does Jesus say to her? Get away from me. No. He says, your sins are forgiven. Everything that you have done wrong against God, everything that as you've lived your life without God, because you have acknowledged me, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus says to her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
this lasting identity and belonging and security are for, for those that have recognized, acknowledge, and follow God. My question for us is this if you accepted that, do you take that for granted? When was the last time that this truth, that God accepts you, a broken person, brought you to your knees in repentance? Has this truth challenged you in that way? Has it ever challenged you in that way? That for some reason that God offers this inclusion to you, In this passage, it also challenges me that God loves people that we might consider distant ourselves. Who in your life is distant from God? Who still rejects God? That is still on this endless search of identity and belonging and security, but not finding it. Who in your networks are far from God? your family members who don't know him, to our friends who still reject him, our neighbours who still have never heard, to the 85% of Australia who still turn away from him, to the 4 million Berber in North Africa who live in ignorance to Christ, to the Sri Lankan community, to even those ISIS members who took the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they're they're still living in disdain for Jesus. To the six million Tibetans in China who bow every day to false gods. To the 750,000 deaf community in Vietnam who need followers of Christ to go to them. Because we have the words of eternal life. We have an identity and a belonging and a security in Christ. That over a third of the world doesn't even have an opportunity to hear about. Today, put into action sharing of the good news with your networks and make an opportunity to pray for them, to share with them. Maybe setting aside five minutes every day to pray. To pray for your uncle, your father, your mother, your cousin, your friend, your neighbor. Download maybe the, Josh, uh, Josh, the, the uh, uh, app called the Joshua Project. And it talks about, it gives you an unreached people group of the day and the statistics around how many of those people still don't know Jesus. And it gives you prayer points to be able to pray for that specifically. Join the group that is now going out in the last two months, going to visit homes. I think there might even be a meeting after this. Just come along. Grow in knowing how you can spread the good news of the gospel. Use the three circles that Heidi, that Carsten showed us. Simple, reproducible, easy. Where should we find our identity, belonging, and security? Our identity, belonging, and security should be found in the fact that we should be part of God's city.
in his heavenly Jerusalem where he promises there will be no more pain and no more suffering and no more tears. And the challenge for us is to live that identity out as ambassadors for Christ, as people who represent Jesus so those around us might hear. Constantly being challenged that God came for us. In 1956, Jim Elliott and his five friends and his four friends were convicted that they should go out and reach a remote tribe in Ecuador. They went out to want to share the good news and this everlasting hope that they had. So they went um, to this tribe called the Alcas. I mean, the Alcas have been slowly killing each other off and they... Uh, They were known for their hostility towards outsiders, um, those that came into their territory. Every single person that entered into their territory or ventured into their world were killed. The Ecuadorian government had a plan, and their plan was to wipe out every single one of them for the problems that they were causing. So these five missionaries knew their time was limited. They had to get in soon. So they, they, they fashioned a plan. They spent months sort of flying overhead into the jungle, dropping presents to the tribe, telling them that we're friendly. We want to come and meet you. We want to share something with you. On January 3rd, 1956, they landed on the sandbank at the middle of the Ecuadorian jungle in the territory of these Alcas. On that sandbank, they called out on speakerphone into the remote jungle. Only the monkeys really could hear, but... One day, two days after, two women and a man comes out of the jungle. And they sit down with him. They they use whatever phrases that they have gleaned from um, that tribe that had fled originally. And they they talked with him. They ate with him. They drank with him. And they even took the man up on the plane and showed him his village from up on the plane. The guy even fell out and had to be pulled back in. Great first meeting. They left and they waited another few days. Now the jungle, after about three days, they saw two women come out and they were so excited, all of them, including him, they, they ran to these two women, not knowing that behind those two women, as they got closer, a group of tribesmen rushed out, spears in hand, and killed all five missionaries. What happened later was about six months, some of the wives and family members of Jim Elliot and his friends they went back And they shared the gospel with them. These godless murderers of their brother, of their husband. Because they were convinced the gospel should go to them. 
Because they had an identity and a security and a hope in so much more that this tribe did not have. In the months and years to come, that tribe isn't wiped out. The government never had to go in because they were all transformed by Christ. And the killing stopped. Jim Elliot, before he died, he wrote these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. He can't keep his life, his earthly body, his stuff. But what he gained was a heavenly citizenship, a belonging in a city that is eternal. And he gave up his life in order that this tribe would know Jesus. Is your identity wrapped up in that? Is your security placed there? Are you someone who belongs to that city So I want to challenge you, let that be the driving force of your life. So that you might be able to reach others who are far from God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you, you might help us to see what is temporary here and to place it in what is eternal. We thank you so much for your son that we have been given hope. I ask that you might help us to live according to that hope as members of your city. I pray for those here that may not know you. And I pray that they might continue to search And in their search, may they find their identity and security and belonging with you. Amen. A challenging message that we've heard this morning um, from the Word of God um, and the way that God has been speaking through our brother Kerry. We want to spend some time just reflecting on that and... As we reflect on that, I guess what we want to do is we want to respond by singing to Him. And I think that's one of the best ways that um, Scripture calls us to respond in the Bible when um, God's people are given uh, a word of God, a message from God. Many of the ways they respond is just by singing, singing praises to Him, singing psalms to Him. And the book of Psalms, where that, that passage came from, is just a book of all these um, songs, if you will, uh, where the people would sing these psalms to God. 
Uh, we're going to respond by singing a song together. And as we do that, uh, there'll be a bunch of uh, bags that come around.